My name is LaVon, and I am a recovering member of the Al-Anon family groups. And I'm delighted to be here. I thought as I was driving down yesterday, ten years ago, this month, at this conference, I spoke for the first time at public level, and I was the spiritual speaker. And this is a nice way to celebrate ten years of having spoken at at, uh, area level, and I appreciate it. Is your soul dry from desolation, wrinkled from worry, itchy from alcoholic irritation, rough from resentments? Try oil of Al-Anon, the balm that heals, soothes, and moisturizes with the water of life. Apply oil of Al-Anon liberally one day at a time and watch the miraculous results. Oil of Al-Anon is the world's most economical beauty preparation. It costs but an hour a week and properly used will last forever. Oil of Al-Anon contains no harmful additives and is guaranteed effective for crushed egos, broken hearts, wounded spirits, and mutilated marriages. For your lifetime supply of oil of Al-Anon, attend meetings regularly. We guarantee the old you back if you're not completely satisfied. I have to give credit where credit's due. I took that from the West Texas Pipeline, their uh, area newsletter. Had I heard that over 16 years ago, I don't know whether I'd have tried you or not. Because, you see, I was convinced that uh, nobody else in the world lived with the problem I did. And I was also convinced that nobody understood what I was living with. Uh, I qualify this pro- with, for this program because I was married to an alcoholic. Now, you know, a lot of us make that judgment, but he told me he was an alcoholic, and he was drunk when I married him. But like many of you, I knew that the love of a good woman would straighten him out, right? <laughs> We're miracle workers, aren't we? We're going to do it all. Well, I was too. We had some good times the first six years that Joe and I were married, and I drank with him um, occasionally. And I can't say that his drinking was really, it wasn't all bad. You know, we had a lot of good times. We did a lot of things socially. There were moments when it had its bad times, and I would have liked to have strung him up. But uh, it wasn't really just strictly hell on earth, and a lot of people have lived through that. And I can't claim that. But there was still the desolation of being in the alcoholic situation when he was drunk for days on end. And uh, you're sure that nobody, literally nobody, is living through what you're living through. And I was convinced. Didn't you know your friends say, well, what do you stay with them for? Well, because you love them. You know, and they don't understand. Uh, While... uh, during that first six years of our marriage, uh, I did attend a couple of Al-Anon meetings. Joe would periodically get just drunk enough that he thought he should go to AA, because he knew about AA, and he'd say, take me to an AA meeting. And so, but like a good wife, I would. And a couple of times they told me I couldn't stay in the AA meeting, that there was another meeting for me, and I would go into these other rooms. Now, I don't know whether Al-Anon was different then, or whether I was just lucky enough to get some strange meetings, but one I went into, I, I've never told this before, but I, have, I decided I'd really share it this time. It was in another state. It was not in California. There were six women in the room. 
And the conversation went like this. Well, I don't need that blankly blank SOB, so I'm just going to, you know, leave him out in the woods, and who cares about him? And anyway, I can do whatever I want, and this program has, has made it possible for me to make that decision. And I thought, you know, I didn't want to divorce him. I wanted him to get well. And I couldn't understand. I thought, well, if that's what Al-Anon's all about, I don't want anything to do with this. So I didn't go back. I just figured, you know, you were a bunch of uh, <clears throat> outspoken feminists. That's what I thought. Anyway, <laughs> um, the last year that Joe drank, there were two, th- two things, two incidents that happened uh, relatively close together. That was the straw that broke the camel's back for LaVon. I had major surgery, you know, the kind we call female surgery, where we're supposed to go a little bit out of our heads. <clears throat> and he turned 50 years old. And on his 50th birthday, he started drinking, and he drank for the next nine months. And three months into that, I had had it. And I said, I can't live like this. And so I packed up with the help of some friends, my household and my one remaining child who was living at home, and I drove a 1,000 miles to the state of Washington where I was going to live in peace and tranquility. Well, the first thing that happened was I couldn't find a job in Washington, and the second thing that happened was I missed him. Eight weeks later, I was back in California picking him up, and we were all going to the state of Oregon where we lived for three months. And as an aside, I have to tell you, Oregon people don't like Californians. They don't like transplants. We didn't find Oregon to be a very delightful experience, and we came back to California. Uh, Two months after we were back, again, something happened in our life that made me realize I could not live with this alcoholic in my life. So I again removed myself from the situation. And... um, Someone had given me a copy of a little book, the front of which said, One Day at a Time, while I was on my way to Washington. And I read it from cover to cover. And I learned a lot of things in reading it. One of the things I learned was that um, I could take things one day at a time and that I should easy does it. Now, those are two things that really stuck out in my mind from having read the book. And so... When I decided that I could no longer live with this alcoholic in my life, I uh, moved my daughter and I into an apartment. And what about my business? And he got himself pretty drunk one night and called me and said he needed me to transport him to the hospital. And I said, well, gee, I'm sorry, but I have something else I need to do tonight. I was so proud of me. And I said, I just can't do that. And so uh, I just kind of dismissed him from my mind and went on about my business. Well, he found somebody to take him to the hospital. He picked up a hitchhiker, had the guy drive him to the veteran's hospital, and then he told the guy, now, um, I want you to take my car to San Francisco and give it to my son. (laughs) Guess what happened? (laughs) We didn't see the car for the next few months. Ah, I tell you, the beauty of being in an alcoholic fog. Wow. (laughs) Took him a couple of days to admit to me what happened to the car. When uh, when Joe was discharged from the hospital, he did not have transportation. He called me and asked me if I would pick him up and take him to the nearest bus stop. 
And so the humane thing to do would be for me to do that, of course, and I did. And after I picked him up, he started in this, well, gee, I don't know where I'm going to live. I guess I'll go to the city. I don't have a job, uh, you know, on and on. And the end result was I told him, well, until you get a job, you can sleep on the living room floor in the apartment. Well, Joe never left the apartment, and we never finalized a divorce at that time. So consequently, um, we stayed together. When Joe did get back to work, he said to me, the only way I am not going to drink again is if I go to AA. And I said, well, fine, go. And so he started attending AA meetings. And it wasn't very long. I can't tell you how many weeks exactly, probably four or five weeks, until at the dinner table one night, Joe and my 14-year-old daughter had a disagreement. Now, I'm a very typical mother, very protective of my children to a degree, and uh, normally I would have been right in there, you know, taking her side and trying to smooth things over. But this night, for some reason, I kept my mouth shut. And they exchanged their bitter words. She went off to her room, and he says, well, I'm going to my meeting, and off he went. When he came home from his meeting, he walked into the house, past our bedroom, and into her room. She was sound asleep already, turned on her light, woke her up, and said, Joan, I want to apologize. There was nothing wrong with you at the dinner table tonight. It was me. Now, I had known this man for 20-some years, and I'd been married to him for six years, and he had never said, I'm sorry, ever, even when he really should have many times, not only to me but to other people. And I realized that there was a tremendous change going on in his life. And if he was going to change that much, that I better get off my butt and get myself to some Al-Anon meetings because obviously whatever this program was, it was good for him and it couldn't possibly hurt me. So I started going to Al-Anon. Now I'd like to tell you I loved every minute of it. <clears throat> I went home from every meeting the first six months depressed. And Joe would say, well, if you feel that way, why do you go? I said, because i got to keep going. <laughs> I've got to keep going. And, um, I, you know, I couldn't really understand it. People shared, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of interesting things, and I heard good stuff, and I learned more about the, the slogans, and the steps didn't quite register real good in the first three months. And, but I, I couldn't understand why I constantly went home depressed. And finally, about six months into the program, one night, somebody was reading the closing, and I heard for the first time, take what you like and leave the rest. I'd been taking it all home. <coughs> I'd been taking it all home with me. Everything everybody griped about, complained about, everybody's anxieties, everybody's upsets, I took it all home. And I must have stood about it all week. I never went to tell them how to take care of it, but... Obviously, I didn't know how to listen with an objective mind and then, you know, leave the stuff there. Well, that was a wonderful, wonderful realization. And so the next week I went back to my meeting and typically there was somebody there with a big problem and I listened and when I left, it stayed. I don't know where it went. The walls must absorb it because it stayed and I went home and I was truly happy and enjoying my meetings. 
It must have been um, a couple of years later. I was at a speaker meeting one night, and um, where I lived at that time in Pleasanton, we have an AA fellowship, and on Saturday night they had a speaker meeting, and they always had a warm-up speaker, and it was always an Al-Anon member. And the, the Al-Anon member spoke for about ten minutes, and then the, the AA speaker would speak. And this particular night, the speaker was a gal from my home group, and she was talking about the 12 steps. And, and she turned around and pointed to the steps, and she said, and in the 12th step it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these other 11 steps. Now, mind you, I'd been going to meetings at least once a week, an Al-Anon meeting once a week, to AA speaker meetings at least once a week for over 24 months and that was the first time I heard anybody say that the 12th step meant we were to have a spiritual awakening as a result of the first 11 instead of that the 12th step said I was to go out and tell people about Alamon. See, we talk about 12 step work and that's where we share our program with other people who are hurting. But that isn't what the 12th step says. It says we had a spiritual awakening by working the first 11 steps. Then we go out and we tell people. And that was the first time I heard that. Now, you realize that I'm speaking about this in retrospect, and thank goodness I have these 16 years, because when I came to this program, I know now, I came with an attitude of, I could tell you some things. I could give you some of my wisdom. You see, I'm a PK. Now, that's an old-fashioned term, and some of you may not know what that means, but that means a preacher's kid. My dad was a minister. And when I heard the first three steps, I said to myself, I know I can't control Joe's drinking. I believe there's a power greater than myself, and I gave my life to God when I was baptized, so I've done the first three steps. And since I'd already done them... And I was a religious person, I could share with you the benefit of my wisdom. At the time, in all honesty, I really didn't come in with that attitude. I didn't realize that that was my attitude. But as I look back, yes, I had a smugness about me. And you know, the beautiful thing about this program is, I sat at tables, just like we're sitting here, and everybody around the table loved me anyway. And you know, pretty soon, I lost some of that. I wasn't so all-wise. And I don't think I was around a program for even quite a year when I realized, I haven't worked those steps. These people aren't talking about religion. They're talking about spirituality. You know the difference between religious and spiritual? A religious person is someone who's afraid to go, they're going to go to hell. A spiritual person is somebody that's already been there. <laughs> We're all spiritual, aren't we? <laughs> I did put the steps to work in my life. And after all, as the ODAT tells us, the study of these steps is essential to progress in the Al-Anon program. I don't know any other way to make progress. The steps are the means of living a successful life. They are our tools, along with the slogans. 
and the traditions and the concepts. But the steps are our tools for recovery. And not many of us make much recovery until we're willing to use them effectively in our lives. You gain a lot by osmosis, at least I did. There were interesting aspects in my early attendance at Al-Anon. My young daughter, who I shared was 14, started coming and sitting at the foot of my bed and sharing things that were going on at school, and she'd not done that before. And one night I said to her, Joan, I really appreciate this opportunity we have to talk, but why all of a sudden? Oh, she says, Mom, you're different. I didn't know I was different. I hadn't done anything to be different. But obviously what I'd heard around the tables had affected me in a such a way that I related to her in a different manner. I was a pretty hard taskmaster as a mother prior to that. I demanded a lot out of my children, and I wanted to dictate how they lived their lives. And obviously I soft-pedaled that. Fortunately, the program really worked, and I stepped back and said, Hey, these kids are individuals. They've got a life to live of their own. And I have a wonderful relationship with them now. And I owe that to this program, to the honest sharing of experience, strength, and hope that people like you did with me around tables like this. I don't know any place that for the investment of a couple dollars a week, I can get that kind of wonderful help. Do you? There just isn't a place around. It's wonderful, isn't it? I guess I've been around the program a little over two years, and I... I was writing on what Joe used to call our pink cloud. Things were really good in our life. And uh, we had our shit together. And 90 pounds of senility walked into my home and shattered my serenity. My mother-in-law came to live with me. <laughs> she was 89 years old and had been um, hospitalized for a period of time and unfortunately was becoming senile. Dealing with somebody like that's dealing like dealing with a wet drunk. It's terrible. And all the things I had learned, or thought I had learned, went right out the window. You know, I mean, I went to my meetings and I said, she this and she that, and they'd say, now, LaVon, one day at a time, easy does it. But you don't understand. <laughs> Have you ever heard that before? You don't understand? Oh. And they say, well, can you, you, have you used the phone? I can't use the phone. She follows me. And she did. You know, she just kind of trotted along behind me wherever we went. <laughs> One day in desperation, I was, oh, I was at the place where I was just about ready to strangle her. And I got her se seated in the living room and gave her a book or something, or I guess a cup of tea. I knew she couldn't get up without putting it down and without scalding herself. Gave her this hot cup of tea, and I dashed in my room and closed the door, dialed real fast one of my friends. She answered the phone, and I said, If she doesn't leave me alone, I'm going to kill her! And I hung up the phone. I felt better. <laughs> Fortunately, my friend had been at a meeting with me earlier in the week, and she knew what the problem was. We did have a babysitter come in once a week, and I went to one meeting a week while my mother-in-law lived with us. And it, I required that to keep my sanity. And during the time she lived with us, those of my home group loved me through it. I really had a hard time letting go of this woman. I felt responsible for her well-being, just like you do with an alcoholic. Uh, and I kept saying, but it's different. Well, yeah, it is different, but 
I was unable to apply the detachment theory with her. I, I re- and I was so convinced I had it, you know. Anyway, um, Mom decided that she didn't like the fact that there weren't other old people around and she wanted to go to a nursing home, or, yeah, a nursing home. And we did put her in, in one finally. And life returned to rosy, blissful, you know, existence. And then about five years into the program, it was about the time that I spoke ten years ago. Um, my husband's oldest son, his wife, seven or eight-year-old daughter, I forget how old she was, two-year-old son and six-day-old daughter came to our home on a Saturday morning with no place to live. Right behind them came the youngest son and his wife and five-month-old baby. They had no place to live. I had a two-bedroom house. There were ten of us, and there were beds and furniture every place. It amazes me as I look back on it, how we survived. But we did. Joe and I went to lots of meetings. <laughs> you know, I mean, that it required that to keep our sanity. Um, I must say that uh, Joe's oldest son and his wife were both program exposed. They were not at that time actively attending, um, but they had been, she had been literally raised in the program because her father had about 30 years of sobriety. And uh, my stepson had been in the program about seven or eight years. So they had program background. And we survived nine and a half months of these children living with us. We had two major disagreements, and we're still friends. I don't know of any other situation um, that you could go through and be friends if you didn't have this program. It just, there's no way. No way could we have allowed each other the right to live and let live. And we were able to do that. Now, that doesn't make me a saint. I'm a survivor with this program. That's what the program allows us to do, is survive. And thank God it does. I got involved in service at about that same time. Uh, I had been a group secretary, and I had been a group treasurer and I had chaired a number of meetings, but I got involved in service at the area level at about that time in my, my program. And what a blessing service is. Um, I'm kind of a take charge person. In fact, people said to me early on in the program, have you read the big book? And I said, no. Well, why not? Because if I read it, I'd tell Joe how to work his program. And I would. And to this day, I have not read the big book. Because if I did, I'd be sure and stop the first alcoholic and tell him how to work his program. Because I still have trouble believing that I know best about a lot of things. And that's one of my character defects, and I'm working on it. The beauty is God lets me work on it. And he gives me challenges every once in a while that makes me have to work a little harder. But that's okay. I really found service to be a wonderful blessing in my life. Um... When we stay in our home areas and go to our home group and listen to the same people talk about the same kind of problems, we can occasionally stagnate. And I had reached the point where I had heard everybody's program. And I had listened to everybody's ideas. And then the opportunity came for service. And I began to 
go out of my area to meetings. And, oh, what a refreshing thing that is. Just like this morning we were uh, in a meeting here and listening to those of you from other areas of California. It's, it's nice to get your input. I'm not just hearing from the same people all the time. That's very broadening. You get new ideas on how to deal with challenges in your life. I can remember real plain going to a meeting one time and having a woman share that when her husband came home drunk and things were not too well and they would exchange words, if she didn't agree with him, she had learned to say, well, that's unacceptable to me. And I thought about that. Now, I had, by this time, my daughter was 19, something like that, still living at home, working part-time and going to school. And she's no different than any other child. She didn't like to do her household responsibilities. And she wouldn't do them for a while, and uh, I would get angry. And I would let that anger see the way inside me. And finally, one day, she'd come home, and I'd just erupt, you know. And she could always tell when it was coming because I'd get that <gasps> look on my face, you know, like I could bite a tenpenny nail into. Well, I heard this gal share that little bit. And so it was, I was at about this point where I was going to tell my daughter what I thought of her inability to keep her into the deal. And I thought, I'm going to try this. So the next day she came home from work and I opened the front door before she got there. And I could see when she saw me, I could see this. She kind of gathered her defenses, you know, and she got to the door, and I opened it, and I smiled, and I said, Joni, I have to tell you that what's been going on here at home and your lack of finishing your responsibilities is unacceptable to me. I don't know what you plan to do about it, but I needed to let you know. And I turned around and walked off and went to the kitchen. She turned around and went to her bedroom. About 15 minutes later, she came back out, and she said, Mom, you're right. I haven't been doing what I should, and I'll do better. Now, that was so much easier on both of us. I didn't have to get angry and have a knot in my stomach. She didn't have to get angry and resent what I said. And the end result was the same. Only she did her end of it quicker because she wasn't mad at me while she was doing it. Those are the kind of things that happen when you go to meetings and you listen with an open mind. There's amazing things that you can learn. I mean, something so simple did such wonders for me. It took me another two years to get up the guts to tell my husband something was unacceptable, but <laughs> I eventually used that on him, too. But service does give you that, that wonderful opportunity. And as we shared this morning in the meeting, service is fun. You come to uh, meetings like this. Judy and I had a wonderful set of fun a while ago. <laughs> I don't know if any of you heard me tell Carol, but the reason Judy and I were able to do this today is because Art B is in Colorado Springs. He's the one that wins all the prizes most of the time. I've never seen anybody so fortunate. Every single raffle, he wins at least three or four. So I'll tell Art, thank you very much. And he can go away again sometime. <laughs> I kind of lost track of... Oh, I know what I was talking about. I was talking about service. <laughs> a couple of the real blessings of service that came to me was uh, the first regional service seminar held in the western region was in 1983 at Phoenix, Arizona. 
and the district uh, where I was living at that time said they could come up with half of the expenses if I'd pay the rest, and they would send me down to Phoenix to be a part of this regional, regional service seminar. And a lot of the people from the World Service Office were out. Our dear co-founder, Lois, was there. Um, people from all of the 11 western states were there. And we had workshops, and we ate several meals together, and it was a most rewarding experience. And I went out of there floating on a high, and I didn't come off that high for a year. It was just the most exhilarating experience. I, I'm not even sure I can put words to it. Other people have gone to a regional service seminar and come away with the same kind of uplifted feeling. In fact, I see heads bobbing here. I know several people here have been to one. Um, I wouldn't have probably had that opportunity if I hadn't been a district representative at that time. Um, just so many blessings have come my way. When I was the alternate delegate, um, the alternate delegate always gets to go to the regional delegates meeting. And uh, the first one that, when I was, my first year was in San Diego. I hadn't been there, I don't think, ever. I had driven through it, but I don't think I'd ever stayed in San Diego. So I got to go to San Diego. And then the next year it was in Houston, Texas, and I'd never been to Texas. And I took a train trip, and I went to Texas, and it was wonderful. And I even did some 12-step work on the train. You just never know when you're going to get an opportunity to, to do what needs to be done for the program. And when I went to those places, I again met people who have had wonderful experiences and who were willing to share their experience, strength, and hope. And I came away richly blessed from that. It was wonderful. It really was. I have served as um, chairman of Northern California um, World Service Area, and that was a real challenge. Um, a lot of things go on at the area level. We, we do the business that makes Al-Anon uh, keep going, and your group representatives come to the assembly, and, and they give us the input. And, uh, and I got to stand up there and, and conduct the business meeting. And that's an humbling experience, you know. When, when you're somebody like me that's a take-charge kind of person, then you feel pretty sure you, you know where your head is. Um, it, it, it kind of humbles you when people get up and tell you you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> It, but it's a, it's a period of growth, and I wouldn't have missed that growth for anything. I think back to, I um, don't remember how long ago it was, and I was sharing with somebody about some of our literature. And it dawned on me, oh, I know where it was, it was at the Spring Fling in Sacramento. Most of you probably have in your personal library books on alcoholism. And my guess is that better than half of them are not conference-approved literature. And yet, do you know people better qualified than those of us sitting in this room to write about what it means to live with an alcoholic? I don't. No psychologist that I know of, unless they have lived in an alcoholic situation, is as qualified as I am to talk about living with an alcoholic. And yet we spend lots and lots of money on books. And I'm guilty, too. I do the very same thing. And the marvelous thing is we have a tremendous library of conference-approved literature. A lot of it was passed out here today. One of my raffle prizes is three volumes of the forum favorites. That's the editorials from all the forums. 
And they are, it's a wonderful resource tool. I use it whenever I chair a meeting on steps or traditions. But it's a marvelous tool. And somebody in those editorials shared their experience, strength, and hope. And we have that opportunity to read that. And if you've ever uh, never seen a copy of the forum, I think I brought one with me, it's like carrying a meeting in your pocket. It's a wonderful way. And it comes out monthly. And it's just a marvelous way. Well, I guess I don't have it with me. It's a marvelous way to carry the program with you on a daily basis. My God has seen, my higher power whom I call God, has seen fit to give me enough challenges to last me a lifetime. And he keeps giving them to me. I did work all 12 steps in my life. But you see, the program is an ongoing program. Once I worked the 12th step, that did not mean that there would never be any more problems in my life. And so on a daily basis, I work and accept the first three, three steps in my life. I had a problem, a real problem, with the second half of both the first and the second step. Because I could admit that I had no power, <coughs> excuse me, no power over Joe's drinking, but I was a very good manager, thank you. I'd managed real, real well. And I believed in a power greater than myself, but I wasn't the drinker. I wasn't crazy. I didn't need to be restored to sanity. Well, I, I don't know. I've been, been around the program five or six years, something like that, and I was listening to a tape. The speaker happened to be a member of AA. However, it was not, he was not speaking at an AA meeting. And he was defining the word sanity. And he said, you know what sanity is, don't you? It's ordered thinking. Well, it was like lights went off in my head. Because I could admit that particularly in Joe's um, last year of drinking, my thinking was anything but ordered. Um, I guess I'd been in the program 10 or 12 years before I even mentally recalled the fact that I doubled up my fist and decked him one day when he was drunk. You know, I mean, he was staggering around, drunker than a skunk, and he decided he was going to pick up the kitchen table because he didn't like it where it was. And there's nothing more dangerous than a staggering drunk with a kitchen table in his arms. And I got so angry at him that I just doubled up my fist and swung. And I caught him right here, and down he went. He never remembered it, so I never had to tell anybody about it. And I... <laughs> And I think I was in Fresno at a day in Al-Anon when I shared it for the first time. I was up at one of your parks. Marilyn, you were there. Yeah. Um, it just came to me. I don't know what. Somebody said something that triggered it in my mind. You know, our minds play funny games on us, don't they? Mm. I lost my train of thought again. Well, that's all right. <laughs> Oh, I know. I was talking about ordered thinking. <laughs> See how it works? <laughs> anyway, after hearing this gentleman identify what sanity was, I then could in all good conscience say to myself, I am powerless. 
over the alcoholic, the alcohol he consumes, and truthfully, anyone else in my life. And the minute I fail to recognize that, my life will become unmanageable. I believe in a power greater than myself, and that power can keep my thinking in order. Now, you know, being five or six years into the program and finally being able to take all of the first and second step, I think it's quite an accomplishment. And I still have to do that. I have to admit that I'm not always in control and that the higher power I have in my life, whom I choose to call God, can keep my thinking in order. And he manages to do a pretty good job, except when I allow myself to get flustered. He also allows challenges to come in my, into my life. And one of those challenges recently has been the fact that my marriage has failed. I had a little problem um, internalizing how I could justify being a speaker at area level if my marriage was unsuccessful. Now, not because any of you made me feel that way. It was just that for a number of my years in the program, I could talk about this very successful marriage my husband and I had with both of us in the program. And yet about four years ago, that success began to be less than successful. That was hard to admit. I did the things that I felt were appropriate to do to work out the problem. You know, there's only so much you can do. You can't make another person change. I did speak to my sponsor. My sponsor and my husband's sponsor spoke to us. Did the kinds of things that I felt uh, would lead to a resolution of the problem. That was not forthcoming. And so I really agonized for several months before I made the decision that I would have to leave my home. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because when I told my husband I had made that decision, I told him that I could no longer live with him. Well, if you think I'm leaving this house, I said, I didn't ask you to leave, did I? You know, we're always very defensive. No, I would not have asked him to disrupt his life. I was the one that could no longer live that way. He was quite content to go on. But I was not happy. I... Uh, I could not, in all honesty, work my program living under those conditions, and so I removed myself. And then I realized that perhaps the fact that I've been in the program, as I said, for 16 years, and I still have challenges in my life, and that the steps still do work for me to address those challenges, and that the end result isn't always what the public perceives to be the ultimate end result, it's perfectly all right. For me, this is important. This is the right thing. And the interesting thing is, I don't think Joe would admit it at this point publicly, but we're both better off. He's far happier without me under the same roof, and I'm delighted where I am. We are both functioning as much better human beings under the circumstance. That doesn't make him less a person or me less a person. We had just reached the point where we could not companionably reside in the same house and it was not doing either one of us any constructive good. So my higher power gave me the courage to leave my home and I currently share a house with my daughter. She says, Mom, you want to come live with me? I need a roommate. So that's where I am. 
I'm quite comfortable now with that decision, and I have no trouble now sharing it with you. Uh, the program works. The thing is that not all marriages made in sickness survive wellness. It's interesting. My husband made that statement about 13 years ago to somebody else. And as I said, Joe was drunk when we got married. And my thinking was anything but ordered. And so I'm not sure that that was a really healthy way to start a relationship. And yet we did, and we stayed together for 20 years. But I feel like now my life is in a healthier condition. I couldn't have made that decision or lived this last year as successfully if I didn't have the program of Al-Anon and people like you to sit around a table and share your experience, strength, and hope with me. And for you to listen to me with an open, non-judgmental mind. That is the wonderful gift you give to me as a recovering member of this program. Non-judgmental love, the ability to sit and listen, and the ability to share your experience, strength, and hope. What a wonderful gift you have given me. And I only hope, in some small way, that my sharing has been my gift to you. Thank you for having me, and God bless.